Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikkel Rogers-Webb. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, Dean of General Studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. Our guest for this episode of the podcast is Dr. Shelly Desertage Wong. She's an associate partner at Panaria Partners, a healthcare advisory and investment bank focused on the growth of biopharmaceutical industry in emerging markets. Before her current role, she served as a faculty member in the biology department at Pace University, as well as working as an adjunct professor at other universities. And before that, she worked for Pfizer for 12 years, where she was part of the genetic technologies group and cardiovascular and metabolic disease group. She won awards while at Pfizer, and she contributed to projects that led to the marketed drugs Zeljans and Sutin. Dr. Desertaj Wong has extensive knowledge about biology, research, and genomics. And in case she wasn't busy enough, Dr. Desertaj Wong also contributed to a book called My Story, My Secrets, Letters to My Younger Self, as well as serving as a nonprofit representative to the United Nations Department of Public Information. Also, full disclosure, she is my cousin. There was so much to talk about, and Mom and I had so many questions that it actually ended up being a really long conversation. So our conversation with Dr. Desitaj Wong is going to be a two-parter. Here's part one. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the field of science. Okay, so my interest in science started at a young age. I was an accident-prone child and managed to fracture my left arm twice, my right arm once by the time I was six years old. My goodness. My first (laughs) fracture occurred in school, um, five years old versus 10 years old. Didn't work out for the five-year-old. My mother taught at the school that I attended. So she took me to the ER at the local hospital where... um, Yes, we had an unexperienced resident who was really nervous about this tiny little child and setting the arm. And long and short of the story, six weeks after the, my arm came out the cast is when everyone realized he didn't do a particularly good job of straightening it. Oh and so my, my arm healed crooked. Oh. My mom then took me to a specialist named Dr. Collimore. And this was the first doctor I encountered who practiced outside of his home. So he had a private home. Um, there was an orchard on the property. Mm. And it, beca- it became quite a little treat to go to Dr. Collimore, um, just because it wasn't your typical doctor's office. And the nurse slash receptionist was the sweetest, kindest woman I had ever met. If there were no other patients, she would take me for walks in the orchard. Oh. while Dr. Collimore spoke to my parents. She would pick downs. They had downs trees. Um, mm-hmm. It's a fruit in Trinidad. And she would walk with me and we would pick fruits. And it was a wonderful experience. Dr. Collimore fixing my arm, not so wonderful. It was a tough, <laughs> it was a tough treatment. However, I wanted to be a nurse because of the kindness I experienced in my interaction with her. Oh. And my mother, being my mother, said, 
if you're a nurse, you're not the boss. Be a doctor so you can be the <laughs> boss. <laughs> so um, since, since then, since the age of about five or six, I've been saying I wanted to be a doctor. And what I had in mind was a medical professional. And my mom supported this. She bought a, a little book all about being a nurse. It had a picture of a girl with her leg in a cast, and it was a little book about being a nurse. I even got a nurse's kit for Christmas one year, so I had my little toy thetoscope and <laughs> my little thing. So the toys that I was given um, encouraged my interest. And I stayed with medicine in mind all through middle school, high school, and entered college thinking that I was going to go into medicine. My freshman year, I met the chair of the department at Pace University, um, chair of the biology department, Dr. Dudley Cox, and he introduced me to the concept of research. Uh, up until I met with him, I did not have a good appreciation for what scientific research was. Um, he was a microbiologist trained at NYU, and um, his research was done in partnership with the New York City Department of Sanitation. It was the late 80s, and there was a lot of concern with regard to um, degradation of paper waste. Landfills in New York were full. There were barges of New York City garbage going up and down the East Coast line because no one wanted to take the garbage and there was no place to put it in landfills. The landfills were full. So New York City was funding research and how can we make the materials in the landfill break down faster? And that was my first part of, like, being a part of that project was my first research experience. And I fell in love. I fell in love with doing research. Um, I fell in love with going into the lab and you know, you're doing your experiments and you're learning something new and the whole idea that you're discovering something that no one knows. Even if the questions are really, really minuscule, like one of the things I worked on was how many different organisms can you find in soil from the landfill at the surface? Mm. Um, 10 feet down, 20 feet down, you know, how far down can you go? What are the organisms? It was a very simple question. It was a project that was reasonably appropriate for an undergrad. But one of the exciting things was he didn't know the answer. Mm -hmm. Right. When, when I, he would ask me the question and the whole idea that no one knew the answer and I was finding the answer was very appealing. So at that point I switched gears um, and pursued graduate school rather than medical school. For a while, I had thought maybe MD, PhD, but at the end of the day, I went graduate school. So I attended um, University of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey, which is now Rutgers, and continued work in microbiology. Um, I joined Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics, and my research was focused on understanding how cells regulate protein synthesis. And I was using Baker's yeast as my model organism, the same yeast that we can't find in the store right now. Oh my goodness, <laughs> right? It's like, how do you make your bed rise now? I know. <laughs> the yeast genome was sequenced while I was working on my PhD research. And the 
as the genome was sequenced, what became clear was that GAL4, which is what everyone referred to at the time as the exemplar for the group, it was actually the outlier. And all the time that I had spent trying to figure out why my protein wasn't behaving like the exemplar, Mm. it turned out we, we didn't have an understanding of this family of proteins because GAL4 was the exemplar because it was the one that we found first. But it turned out the one we found first was not the exemplar. So having the genomic sequence completely changed how we thought about our proteins and how we thought about how everything worked. And I decided at that point, going forward, I wanted to work in the area of genomics. I wanted to work on understanding systems in cells, not one protein at a time, but having a more holistic approach, a more omic approach to genomic approach. So as I finished up my PhD, when I looked at opportunities for postdoctoral research, one of the opportunities that was very appealing to me was with Michael Snyder, who at the time was at Yale University, and his lab had developed approaches to understanding um, functions of proteins, but genome-based approaches. How do you begin to understand the functions of those proteins, the functions of those genes you didn't know existed? Some of them, you can look at their sequence and compare them and find out, oh, this, we don't know what it does, but structurally, the protein looks similar to something we know. So then we can build a hypothesis that says maybe it has a similar function. But there were also a set of genes that didn't look like anything else, and we didn't know what they did. So Mike had an approach where you can systematically get information about what are the conditions under which a cell will express a particular gene. Um, When it makes a protein, where in the cell does the protein go? And if we delete it, what does the cell survive? And if the cell survives, um, what, what is the phenotype? How does it change? How does the deletion of this protein alter the cell? So that was really appealing to me. And I took the opportunity to go work in Mike's lab and did some work on understanding essential genes and what the roles of some of those essential genes might be. And while I was at Mike's lab, he was interested also in my microbiology background and he was also interested in new medicines. And he had a brother, John Snyder, who was working out of Boston and John Snyder is a chemist. And what he was doing was looking for novel medicinal compounds from plants. Hmm. So John would actually collect, at first, when he started the project, he told me, he would collect plants that were in traditional, traditional practice for different tribes. He would collect the plants, just the region of the plant that was used, but eventually he started collecting leaves, roots, flowers from different plants and he would process them and extract chemicals from them and look for function in those chemicals. And he had some extracts, um, some components that he'd isolated 
from a plant where he had some data to suggest that um, they would slow the growth of breast cancer cells growing in, in vitro, in petri dishes in the lab, but he didn't know if the plant had any antimicrobial activity. So I agreed that I would do those studies and I screened different extracts from his lab looking to see if we can find antimicrobial activity and we were fortunate we were able to isolate a novel compound from a plant that's indigenous to Madagascar and that novel compound had activity against some bacterial strains that cause pneumonia. So that experience was kind of my first foray entry into ah medicines, drugs. <laughs> There's so many opportunities and the, the process of going from the plant and you know, if we extract with these different solvents, we have activity here, we don't have activity there, and we have to refine and refine and refine. Um, that was my first experience that thought, you know, this, the whole idea of working in a company where you can look for drugs, look, looking into the biopharmaceutical industry, this becomes interesting as well. And as it turned out, um, after I finished up my postdoc, that is the point at which I went to work at Pfizer because there was an opportunity to work in the drug industry in terms of finding and developing new medicines. And there was also an opportunity to leverage the genomic approaches, which at the time were quite new. So to begin to leverage those within the pharmaceutical industry to try to understand um, what are all the proteins at the time. So I started, I started at Pfizer in, 1999, the human genome wasn't sequenced. We didn't know all the, we didn't even know how many proteins were encoded by the human genome. We didn't know how many genes there were. Um, so the idea that you could take genomic approaches and begin to ask really broad questions that stood outside of the scope of what do I know to ask questions about what are the genes that are involved in a particular disease um, and how can I characterize them? So that's a little bit of the, that's the experiences and the journey that took me from what am I going to do when I grow up to here I am today. <laughs> wow. That's fascinating, Shelley. It really is. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, it's been, a, it's been an exciting journey. When I, when I left Pfizer in 2011, I spent some time in academia and, um, which was a really good experience because I enjoyed the teaching component of grad school, um, but just did not pursue a career in academia. So the opportunity after I left Pfizer to go and teach at Pace University um, and then to continue that teaching in some of the schools in Connecticut, um, that allowed me to experience a career at the academia, in academia. And while I was doing that, a former colleague from Pfizer um, reached out to me and said, I'm starting my own company and I'd like you to come on board with me. Um, we were co work colleagues and we became friends after being work colleagues. And um, when she told me what, what the company was focused on, um, growing the industry within emerging markets, I was, all in because 
one of the things I became to appreciate is how, how different the fact that the biopharmaceutical industry produces so many medicines, so many treatments, and even when there isn't a medicine made, there's so much increase in our understanding of how surgeon systems work, how surgeon diseases work. And that's an industry that at the end of the day improves health. That's what it delivers, understanding that helps us improve health. But the industry is focused in the sense that it's very strong in some countries and almost non-existent in others. And so the benefits that you would feel from having that industry present and functioning well is limited in the countries where it's non-existent. And sometimes it's non-existent because there isn't enough momentum. There are scientists asking questions, doing good research everywhere. But on a global scale, there isn't a lot of recognition and acknowledgement of the scientific research that's occurring in many of the emerging markets. So the idea behind this company was that we would work towards growing the biopharmaceutical industry in emerging markets by shedding some light on some of the work that's going on in emerging markets, by being the representatives of companies so that we can take innovative programs from emerging market companies and shine a light on these programs as potential partnering opportunities for global pharmaceutical companies. Mm. And so um, that's, that's what I've been doing these last um, almost five years. Oh. So no. what I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, mom. Go ahead. No, so what I'm hearing you say is that just the presence of the research and having it get enough attention um, benefits everybody in that community. And so... Because you're talking about an industry that is generating jobs, right? Yeah. So there are jobs available as a result of having the industry. There are many, many, many biopharmaceutical companies. The employees in those companies, most scientists, um, they love the science. They love the science. And you catch them at the hardware store, they'll talk about the science. You'll tell them, oh, I have this kid who's struggling. They'll go volunteer in the school. They'll go do science demos in the schools. They will tutor the kids in algebra. That seems to be a mathematical area that a lot of people are um, a little bit nervous about. You will find in those companies people who's, because you do this because you love it. You do this because you love it. The success rate, it is very, very easy. So later on, we can talk more about the process of drug discovery and development. But a person can have a 30-year career and never once work on a drug that makes it to market. Oh, my goodness. So it's really hard. The attrition is that high. So what keeps someone motivated to keep working? Yeah when they know how high the attrition is and it's love of what they're doing and the hope that mm -hmm. what they're doing is gonna make a difference. So maybe what the experiment I'm doing today isn't gonna help put a drug on the market, but maybe the method I developed for making this particular chemical structure, someone else could use it 
and they could make chemical structure that could help someone else in another disease. Or maybe the cell method that I developed for getting, um, for expressing a particular protein, maybe that's not gonna be, be what makes the difference for the project that I'm working on, but it can make a difference for someone else's project. So when we hear the scientists talking about um, developing a drug or a vaccine for the um, COVID-19 right now, and we, we hear other people saying, okay, that will be possible in six months, 12 months, they aren't really being realistic, are they? So, so when it comes to vaccines, there are a couple different ways that vaccines can be made. Um, one of the traditional ways of making a vaccine, um, have you heard of live vaccine versus attenuated vaccine? I have. There's the, with the live, yes. they inject some, uh, some live virus. Correct. The other one, it's, it's dead and there's, yes. I don't know, kind of the ins yes. and outs. So you have the general idea. So you can actually grow the live vaccines. You have to grow, imagine, if you're trying to grow enough of an organism, in a controlled enough manner that you know, okay, this only contains the organism I'm growing and it doesn't contain any other organism, <laughs> right? And then you have to get enough of it to inject it into how many millions of people? Yeah. Right? So yeah. that's a tremendously large scale production, large scale manufacture. So your typical vaccine it's four years if you're going to grow up a huge amount of vaccine or if you're going to get protein from the vaccine because the ideal scenario is if you can get some protein from the infectious organism or the infectious particle like a virus you're going to have some protein from it and you're going to make huge quantities of that protein right and then you want to inject that protein into someone as a vaccine and when you inject the protein the person's immune system recognizes that the protein is foreign and it develops antibodies. And so those antibodies become the protection should that person encounter the actual organism because they already have the antibodies that would recognize the organism. So you can do that by introducing the protein or you could do that by introducing the attenuated, so the attenuated virus, basically, if you're doing attenuation, you're doing something to hurt either the virus or the bacteria so that it's not 100%. It's not going to work 100%. Maybe you heat it up significantly or you do a chemical treatment that will denature it. So it's not functioning as it would if it were, you know, completely healthy infectious organism. So when it's introduced into your system, you're still going to mount a response. It's probably going to be a stronger response because you now have an active infection, right? So these are the types of vaccines where you would tend to say, oh, and you might develop a fever because fever is part of the body's response to fight an infection. Okay. Okay. But, but those take time. They take time. Even the, the vaccine most of us are familiar with, uh, the annual influenza vaccine, right? So every year, there's, in order to have enough time to make enough vaccine, there's an educated guess. 
So for, out, for the northern part of the planet, there's an educated guess that occurs in about January, February as to what are the proteins that are most likely going to be present on the outer part of the virus this year. And that educated guess has to be made in January, February, because it's going to take from then till August, September to make enough vaccine to have vaccines available to give to folks before the full flu season hits. So some years, the vaccine works really, really well because there was a good educated guess on what proteins were going to be present on the virus. In some years, it doesn't work that well because the educated guess, it's a guess. It didn't work out that well. The, the virus did something different. So for influenza, which is where we have an annual vaccine, it's a good example to think about. The normal course is several months. Now, one of the things that is... One of the areas that people are working on thinking in terms of a COVID-19 vaccine is looking at RNA vaccines. So the key difference between an RNA vaccine and an attenuated vaccine that we just talked about, an attenuated vaccine, whether you're growing, you have to grow the virus and you have to grow very large quantities of the virus. So with the attenuated so there's live, attenuated, and then RNA. Yes. Okay. Got so, it. And, and then separate from RNA, there's protein. So you can have a virus. So um, for example, tetanus, that's usually a toxoid. So um, the bacteria, bacteria that causes tetanus, the big problem is this toxin that the bacteria produces. So if you can get um, a denatured, a misshapen version of the toxin, you can get an immune response mounted without causing infection. So you can use a, you can inject with a protein or an antigen. The antigen is the sequence of protein that the immune system is going to recognize and respond to. So you can introduce the antigen, you can introduce the whole organism, or you can introduce a crippled version of the organism. Okay, got it. Okay, so the RNA vaccines, what, how those are different, and they're relatively recent, is you introduce material that's going to code for the antigen. So you engineer a sequence, right, based on your knowledge of the infectious organism. So based on SARS-CoV-2 sequence, for example. So what happened with SARS-CoV-2? Here these patients were showing up in the hospital in Wuhan with this respiratory syndrome that the doctors were not recognizing. What is it? So you're trying to diagnose the patient. So you're taking material from the patient. So um, even now when we talk about, oh, you know, we did a nasal swab, what they did is a, a bronchoalveolar lavage, essentially introduce a little fluid into the lungs and pull it out so that you can pull out whatever material is there, a little bit of that material. And so now you have liquid that is gonna contain whatever infectious organism is in the lungs that's causing the problem. And so they isolated the virus from that and sequenced. And when they sequenced it, they found out, oh, okay, this sequence, the DNA, 
the genetic material, some viruses have RNA as their genetic material, but the genetic material looks a lot like the genetic material of other coronaviruses that we've encountered, but it's not the same. It's, right, right? So once you have that sequence, and it's just four bases, right? Guanine, adenine, thymine, cytosine. So you can look and you could compare. Um, I just sequenced an organism. Is it novel? If it's new, um, does it resemble anything that's out there? So as soon as you have a sequence, one of the things you start doing is you start comparing to what's in the database, what's in the database. Oh. And based on identity. Yes. Right? So um, the, because the coronaviruses are not new, right? Coronaviruses have been, a long, been around a long time. So based on the sequencing, they realized this was similar enough to coronaviruses that it belonged to the family of coronaviruses. However, it's not the same SARS that we heard about back in the early 2000s. It's something new. So, I, so that's why they're calling it a novel coronavirus. Because yeah. I was like, is this, is this brand new? But it's, it's ish. It's Correct. similar, but it's different enough so that we don't have some sort of protocol for it yet. Correct. Correct. So, and, and one of the reasons that they knew there was a tie to bats is there was some sequencing work done on some bat coronaviruses that was in the databases. So this, once again, the comparison, the identity, oh, this is actually really mm -hmm. similar to what came from bats. It's similar. It's in the coronavirus family. It's got that similarity to the SARS that we saw before. And so you begin to realize, oh, they, based on the sequence, you can actually take sequence data. And based on how you take the two most similar sequences, and they're closest together. And the more different the sequences are, the further apart they get. So the same way, if you think about it, if you've done family tree, family, if you've studied your family tree and you can imagine your individual family unit. So my husband and I, we've got two kids, so we're one little family unit, but you're gonna find similarity to my husband's side of the family and my side of the family and my boys mm -hmm. so that you can map them and say, okay, yes, they fit here and they're more related to each other and this other branch of the family here. We do the same thing using sequences. But that points out what you said a little while ago about people just doing research and maybe it's not some huge breakthrough, but it matters because when, you know, 30 years later, if someone has to look at a sequence of something that may or may not be new, they're going back to what other people did, even if it yes. wasn't a huge breakthrough at the time. Yes, very true. Very true. And it's, it's um, an irony in the sense that for many years, um, we've seen a decrease in investment in research in infectious disease. Because some of the thinking overall has been, we've eliminated some of them. We have vaccination pro protocols. Population of the world overall is protected against all these different diseases. And so slowly over time, there's been a decrease in the number of infectious diseases that scientists are doing research in. There's been a decrease in um, funding from various granting agencies. There's been a decrease of interest. Um, mm -hmm. That said, 
of course, infectious disease research continues in areas that we don't fully understand. So um, I think the MERS outbreak was, has probably been in the news and MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, that, that actually caused, it, it's a virus that jumped from camels to people. Oh, wow. And that occurred a few years ago. It did not become a pandemic as the SARS-CoV-2 has become a pandemic. Um, and even SARS caused a lot of infections, but SARS did not become a pandemic either. But in terms of the public awareness that viruses making the move from organisms to people occurs. How does that happen? Mm -hmm. I mean, like it sits inside animals and they're fine. How on earth does something jump? Um, Sometimes, so it's not, well, it's not a physical jump, <laughs> <laughs> but what happens? So this, this concept called viral tropism. So certain viruses um, can grow in certain types of cells and in certain species. And a virus may grow in bats and the bats are perfectly fine. And the bats have no issues whatsoever. But then Somewhere, and you know, every a, vi a viral particle will infect a cell, because viruses, are, viruses um, in and of themselves, are not alive. They have to infect a cell in order to replicate. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they've got to come to come into contact with a cell, and they've got to deliver um, their the material, their genetic material, into a cell in order to replicate. So we call them. Um, they're obligate parasites. They, they can't replicate without um, getting their material into a cell. But during the course of replication, you might have a change in the sequence. Maybe the enzyme doing the copying of the genetic material made a mistake. One base got changed. And some of these mutations are going to have no effect that we can see in terms of the behavior of the viral proteins. But there may be a mutation that caused the virus to now be able to bind to a human receptor. Oh. Ah. Right. So it's now like if fluids or blood, like if there's, or like they're telling us don't touch your face. If that happened with a mutation of a virus. Right, a virus so, so you can imagine if the virus isn't existing in these animals and just, you know, random mutation one of the animals had a version of the virus just from random mutation that's now able to bind to a human receptor mm -hmm. the second thing that has to happen is you've got to get that in close contact with a human being okay mm -hmm. so what we find is as we decrease as we have growth of the human population as we have movement of the population into areas that were previously occupied only by animals only by very few people that we had that had maybe encountered one or two but the closer proximity you have between species the higher likelihood there is for an a viral particle that randomly happens to have a mutation to encounter mm. A potential host that it can bind to the, the receptor on that person's cells and get in. 
So these mutations, they, like you said, they're random. So it sounds like they could occur any day, all the time as they're replicating. Yeah, there are actually some, so there were, so the SARS-CoV-2 from Wuhan was sequenced actually, I want to say within a month, within a month of oh, wow. um, the, there being this recognition, this is a pneumonia we don't recognize. Within a month, it was sequenced, it was put into what we call GenBank, which is a public repository for DNA information. So anyone can go and look for GenBank, SARS-CoV-2, and they will find a sequence of the virus from Wuhan. But there have been a couple other sequencing projects, and there's thinking that the virus that was sequenced in Wuhan, some of the patients that are sick now are sick with that virus, but it's also mutated. Mm. So it's not so, just COVID-19, it's COVID-2 that's mutated. So, so the SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, uh-huh. and it causes the disease COVID-19. Oh, okay. Thank you for that clarification. Okay. So the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, for every person it infects, it's going through multiple rounds of replication, viruses being shed. Um, so there's a lot of replication of the virus going on in this pandemic, right? Mm. The more rounds of replication any organism has, the increased likelihood that there will be some genetic change. And many genetic changes are corrected, at least in human cells, many genetic, we have mechanisms to correct mutations that may occur due to replication errors when we're replicating our own DNA. But every round of replication is an opportunity for something to go around, to to change. So some of the thinking now is that maybe one of the reasons we're seeing such different symptomology now than they saw in Wuhan is because there's minor changes, not enough changes for it to be a new virus, but just like a different strain of the same Mm -hmm. virus. And maybe some of the different strains uh, causing different types of symptoms, different symptomology, maybe some of the strains are affecting certain populations differently from other populations, depending on what other illnesses those folks have. So the thinking is that what we have now is probably a couple different strains circulating Mm -hmm. as opposed to it's the identical sequence that came from China. So one of the things that that is, actually going through the communities right now is that children are being affected in a different way with rashes and with um, sometimes uh, diseases of the heart, which is, uh, they say it's, it's part of the virus, but it's certainly different and they can't explain it. Yeah, and I saw those, I saw those reports as well. And it's hard to explain because it was not clear to me that all of these children tested positive, but at the same time, depending on what diagnostic test is used, um, a a negative result may not be real. Anytime you do a test, a diagnostic test, um, two of the criteria that are used to measure the tests, um, how well they work, is do you have a false positive rate? 
as in is the test telling you you have something that you don't mm -hmm. and then what is the false negative rate is the test telling you you don't have something when you do so one easy way to think about it and put it in a different context is um the pregnancy test your typical over-the-counter pregnancy test right when they advertise they talk about accuracy if you think about any advertisement you've heard for a pregnancy test if it's if they paid enough to market it on tv they're talking about accuracy and they will tell you 99.9 percent .9 accurate mm -hmm. right so any diagnostic test that goes um, into the market has to have the certain criteria that are set for what's an acceptable false positive rate and what's an acceptable false negative rate because of the pandemic, there may be a few tests out there that don't hit the normal standard criteria that are set because in the face of the pandemic, it's better to have some information than none. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say, depending on what test was used, a negative result, you can have a negative result if you're early in the infection and you just don't have enough viral count for the test to pick it up because the test is going to have, the test is going to be capable of, capable of picking up a certain number of viral particles. So if your number of viral particles is below that, the test can't detect it. So you get a negative, but you might still have an infection, mm. right? Because there's going to be a lower limit of detection. The detect, the detect, the, some tests are only going to be able to go so low. And that's where you're gonna come in with a potential for a false negative. Your viral load is less than what the test is capable of detecting, or um, a percentage of the time whether it's, it fails. And there could be a number of reasons, you know, how the sample's obtained, how long from the sample till it gets to the machine. There's so many different areas that go into what contributes to a false negative rate. Um, what contributes to false positive rate. There's a lot more focus on false negatives, of course, because you don't want to have people thinking the negative when they're mm -hmm. not. Yeah. Well, I've learned a ton. I hope you have too. And I hope that means that you will want to join us for part two. That episode will come your way next week. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to At The Same Time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter, at sametimepod. Music by purpleplanet.com. Copyright 2020 by Nikel Rogers Wood, PhD, and Elsa Rogers, PhD.